0: It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors, and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life.
2: Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tananarive Do, talk about writing
0: during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood and balancing life.
2: Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects.
0: Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing.
2: Welcome everybody. Welcome. Oops, welcome. There it is. They started to clap and they got scared. Yes, we have I, you know, we'll we'll do our banter and everything first, but I'm so excited about our guest today. I'm gonna mention her right at the top. We have Maureen Ryan, the author of the book everyone is talking about in Hollywood called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. But before we bring her in, did you want to say something, Steve? Yeah, I wanted
0: to say that to me, the information in the book is important because if, let's say someone wants to be a writer, the most important thing you can do in terms of achieving any goal is to have a realistic assessment of the territory you're going to be traversing, as well as a knowledge of yourself. In this particular case, There's always a gap, not just in this particular case, but in any case, there's always a gap between what people say the game is and what it actually is. So a lot of people have tried to traverse the territory in Hollywood and been very disappointed and been lied to or hurt, or abused or whatever. And they often feel like they're alone or that, you know, they're hallucinating. They will be told, they will be gaslighted Mm -hmm. about their own experience. Mm -hmm. So every time you have someone who can document these things, it helps to create a more realistic and clearer map of that territory so that you can make your plans more intelligently. And you can decide, okay, you know, it's – when I was starting out in the field, it felt like I was pogo sticking through a minefield that was that was not marked out. I had were, to kind of say, you know, what's going on here? Because people would tell me that, oh, no, there's no problem, Steve. It's a meritocracy. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so, but, but as you gain greater knowledge, you really, it's just human beings doing what human beings do in this other context over here. And I don't think it's better or worse. I just think that it's different and it's disappointing because in the arts you'd like to think that people who can make beautiful things would be beautiful people above and beyond the average. But no, they're just people. which well means put. They're they're driven by fear as well as love. And in Hollywood, you know th- that whole thing about nobody knows anything. So there is a lot of superstition, a lot of fear, a lot of people holding on to their little fiefdoms you know so it's interesting i can't wait for this conversation
2: oh it's gonna be so much fun but before we bring maureen on and i've always called her mo so okay <laughs> I, mo. I didn't even know she was a maureen until i saw the book i actually her byline when when the first excerpt of the book came out but let's talk about a little bit you know what's going on Because we are going to be in church today, okay? We are be in, <laughs> in a very sick, sick version of church. But just in terms of what I'm doing, you know, this is the end of the quarter at UCLA. And I have finally reached that point as a lecturer where I get paid summers off, which is, you know, that's, that's what you're looking for. Uh-huh. So I'll be coming up on that point soon. And interestingly enough, I will be giving a lecture at Antioch University, Los Angeles, where I also formally taught to up-and-coming screenwriters. And it, that balance between keeping your joy as a writer who wants to break into an industry at the same time, there are so many things happening. The, the WGA strike. Will there be a SAG strike? This book, burn it down. All these indicators. That, what a horrible, horrible place to work, you know, so try to keep your joy balanced with headlines and, and stay focused on what you can control the most, which is what's on the page.
0: Let's see with, with me working on two books and one of them is, you know, media tie-in, although it has nothing to do with the WGA, thank God. Uh, Mm. The other one is working with my mentor and longtime collaborator, Larry Niven, and so, so it's in order to do this right. I'm have I, I wanted to try to estimate how many pages of work a day I need in order to stay on track, especially if, if some other things come up because we've got some other things that we're kind of expecting to happen. You know, we are definitely pencils down in terms of the WGA, now, however, and it looks as if if I do ten pages, you know, sort of done by one by two o'clock by one or two o'clock in the afternoon. And then I relax in the afternoon portion of the day and just kind of, you know, work at second attention watching a movie while I kind of do some typing. I can do 10 pages in the morning and then another five pages in the afternoon. It doesn't feel like it's stripping my brain. It feels like I'm still kind of in the flow space where I'm okay. You know, I wouldn't want to do more than this. You know, I can feel that there's some barbed wire, there's a little bit of here, there be dragons, you know, on the other side of that. But right here, right now, as long as I've got a good, strong outline to work from and all I'm doing, and I don't worry about spelling or grammar or punctuation, anything, just write. Just fill up the pages in in this phase of it. It feels like I can do this. It feels like it's gonna be okay. So that that 15 page is good. Trying to stay in alignment with the, with the, the kid part of me. And to stay in the flow state part of me while the adult part of me works on the overall outline and keeps track of the of how much is being done per day and stuff like this. The kid part of me that does the writing doesn't need to know about that stuff, just wants to know right now, can I play? Can I have fun? And so it's it's doing the low-hanging fruit thing that we've talked about, where you look over the outline, you find the stuff that's easiest to write, that's the most fun to write, and just do that stuff. And the other things the more difficult things get easier down the road because you're getting super familiar with the entire project so that's kind of the most important thing that i can think of right there that it's it's how much work do i need to get done without but i can't exceed the amount that will burn me out 6 weeks from now
2: no so and i have
0: to be a sustainable pace
2: I've been watching you at this for almost twenty-five years. In August, and let me say, you've got this. Oh, okay, got <laughs> you, it. you've absolutely got it. And sticking to the outline—that oh. is the absolute—that is the north star. So you, you've got it, baby. I know. You know. Sometimes we go on longer with what's going on, but I'm just so excited about. No, it there's, a to, this,
0: this there's a lot to. There's a lot to get here. I'd, I'd like to get to our guest.
2: So, yeah, let's let's bring her on. Maureen Ryan is a contributing editor of Vanity Fair and has covered the entertainment industry as a critic and reporter for three decades. She has written for Entertainment Weekly, The New York Times, Salon, GQ, Vulture, the Chicago Tribune, probably many, many more. Prior to joining Vanity Fair, Ryan served as the chief television critic for Variety and the Huffington Post. She has served on the jury of the Peabody Awards. She's won three Los Angeles Press Club Awards. If you have not bought or read burn it down power complicity and a call for change in hollywood whether or not you work in the industry if you're just an observer and you love watching movies and television you must read this book we're going to talk all about it bring on maureen ryan oh, yay. Yay.
1: Woo, thank you so much
2: i i have never seen them so excited
1: calm down <laughs> and from here on out it's mo so <laughs> okay mo okay it's Mo. And the reason I'll, I'll explain the byline thing for a minute because most people do call me mo but my my parents did not like it and mm. I, when answering machines were a thing they would leave me a long, maureen it's your dad don't we don't your name and because my outgoing message would be mo and they would give me a long lecture about it so i like you know <laughs> I could not disrespect the ancestors. They have both passed. It's like, I just felt like something would go awry in my life if I put Mo on the cover of my first
0: book.
1: Oh, well, that's a beautiful tribute nice to parents.
0: It's nice of you to think about them. I mean, so like, I'm sure if their spirits were watching, they would chuckle and, and be, be they grateful.
1: Would. Yeah, they would. Thank you for that. Yeah. I, and, I, and by the way, I wish I had hired both of you as consultants before I sat down to write this book because, boy, oh, boy, did I misunderestimate the amount of time I would need <laughs> to do it. Right. You know, it's one of those things. I'm a newbie to publishing. You, you know, you're veterans. I just, you know, just getting the, the pitch together was a lot. The document you have to do and you know, mm-hmm. that, to a state where you can show it to publishers, this long proposal and, you know, with a couple sample chapters and whatnot. And then I, I when they said, well, Mo, your book's going to be June of 2023. My first thought was, like, I hope it's still relevant. Then, <laughs> obviously not. Oh my gosh, is it ever? Bigger? No, I mean, you, <laughs> you this basically... stuff is. This multi
0: generational problems require multi generational solutions. There's, if you believe in human equality, then if you see an an unequal situation in the world, it's going. You're going to attribute that to the environment and anything that has been this entrenched for this long there's no way it's going to get solved in one or two or even three generations this is going to be a, a battle and you're going to have to fight that battle anew every decade because as soon as you make any progress people are going to say oh we're done now right
1: and right. it's so yeah the, the hollywood's especially prone to that version of magical thinking for sure hmm.
2: Yeah, I can't wait to, I just wanted to mention that if people who have read the book, or if you haven't, you basically predicted the, the WGA strike, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. so it's not irrelevant, it's not irrelevant at all. It actually looks like you're a soothsayer at this point.
1: How did you possibly know? <laughs> well, that was the thing I had to, I rewrote that so many times, you know, right up to the wire as soon as, you know, like they were t- like dragging it out of my hands, like, Mo, we need, production needs the book. But I, you know, I think it's because I'm sure that this is what, how, I, I don't know how it was in the circles within that you're traveling in, but I spoke to everyone and uniformly, people were like, I don't want to strike. I think there's going to be a strike because in a big factor, and this is, I explained the book, and I, I don't need to explain to you, but maybe for your listeners, they kicked the can down the road in 2020 because of the pandemic, which I understand. There were some minor gains, especially for the writer's guild, but largely the industry said, we're dealing with this incredible crisis, so we're not gonna. We're, no one's going on strike in the you know in the middle of the pandemic. That just was unrealistic, and I understand. But the changes wrought by the industry just in the last the last decade has every decade of me covering the industry. It has changed enormously, but I do think the most consequential consequential changes were the past ten years. You know, we saw the amount of TV triple. And I was just hearing about people that in a million years, I never thought they would be as struggling as much as they are or were privately, you know, folks were struggling and it's always been a brutal industry. You know, most people, and that's why actually I think Hollywood is very much America writ large, you know, or writ small, however you want to view it. Hollywood has always been a gig economy. And if you didn't have those guilds, boy, would it be even more of a, disaster, really, for the average working person. And I hope that one thing the book did or does for readers is demystify the fact that most people just, just want a roof over their heads. They want to pay their bills. Most working people I know, yeah, maybe they have a vacation home, but the vast majority of people I know in Los Angeles who are in creative industries are facing doubling and tripling rents. Their incomes haven't doubled or tripled. I know people who've been number one on the call sheet for a film or a TV show and they live in a house that's exactly like mine. And I, you know, I live in the Midwest. So like, they're not living these large lives. I, I blame the, the TV show entourage for so much. And one of them is that like you roll up to Los Angeles and maybe you hit a few roadblocks, but you and your your friends will be attending parties and living in mansions for the majority of the time, which is like, Oh my gosh, it's not that. It's, it's really not, not.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of, especially among the screenwriters, I've seen statistics, you know, $50,000, 55000 a year averages. I mean, there are a lot who make a lot more than that and a lot who make less than that. But it's a middle class lifestyle for a lot of writers. Absolutely. And- so I've had a,
0: I have a theory, and I don't know whether or not this is accurate at all. But I have a theory that, you know, Hollywood is one of the few places on the planet where actors and writers especially can get a weekly paycheck, that that it is an unholy union of art, which traditionally has been, you know, you you do art and you accept poverty to Mm -hmm. a certain degree and business, you know, so that you have the executives who are coming from the business side of it and they know maybe just enough art, just enough about art to be able to communicate. And then you have artists. Who those who can work in Hollywood know just enough about business to stay on the production line, and it's it's you know it's like porcupines mating. It's very uncomfortable, and each side considers the other side. You know the, the, the artists consider the 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 executives to be heathens and barbarians, and the executives consider the artists to be children. Mm-hmm. And. That, that a lot of the problem in Hollywood comes from the fact that it is it's not a common meld of uh, ways of looking at the world.
1: Uh, not at all, not at all. And I think you know I speak to you know I get invited to speak to journalism classes or to college students. and one thing I say is or you people who are studying creative writing, what is churned out by Hollywood is not that's what they'll they'll spend money on making. You can dream of any story. You can write any story. This is just what this set of executives think will be commercial at this moment in time. Right. Because I don't actually want people to put limits on their imagination. No. Um, But I do think that I'm so glad that you so systematically address issues of lifestyle, mental health, physical health, because I do think that this mystif- you know, th- this this mystical glamour, this you know, pixie dust that's sprinkled over the industry in the eyes of the public. It's a really, really brutal industry. It really yeah. can, it can, it can really shred your spirit. And I'm so glad, you know, that you said that. It, you know, it's. I really had a purpose with this book, and actually, much of my career has reflected this purpose. Yes, you should work hard on your craft. Yes, you should work hard on being a good person and a good collaborator, all those things. But if you encounter roadblocks and problems that are very significant and very damaging and make you doubt yourself, I can tell you the majority of the time, that's the system and it ain't you. Yes. It's not you. Absolutely. A lot, of, a lot of what I can do is. keep you know, what I can do as a journalist, because I know the risks of people speaking up, I know the risk to someone's deal with the studio goes away the minute they, you know, write that blog post or social media post or whatever that that can, the retribution is very real and very common. So I really feel like the role of the media is to say, to sort of take a, take a step back or a critic, you know, a critic or a reporter, whatever hat I'm wearing, I can take a step back, look at the bigger picture and I can take the heat because I know that the people working on it can't. I can't tell you how many times, even as a critic, I've written something negative and the PR person for that show or even one of the creative team says, no, you're right. The studio is making us do this or do that. So, I, you know, the media itself, my, my end of the industry, journalism, criticism, it's in a very, you know, rickety state right now. I wouldn't say it's like in a healthy State we, we also keep getting bought by billionaires who seem to have a basic hostility to what it is that we do. So that's fun. But mm. what we can do is take a step back and assess. And the patterns that I assess as a reporter, they're so overwhelmingly, as you say, baked in. And I really want people who are either in it and being made to doubt themselves or coming into it. And with all that fire and enthusiasm and joy. And I want to say, yes, keep it. You, and, and the only person who's going to keep that fire and that creative joy alive for you is you. But within community, you can also have more protection than you would alone. And you're Thank God for protection. unions. And that is that is the point
2: of burn it down, bringing awareness. That is the point of bringing awareness. You know, I want to go back to something I, I, I thought was really beautifully put in the book. There's a lot of exposé and there's a lot of gasping that I experienced while I was reading it. But when you talked about how you don't go to award shows because that that level of glitz and glamour is sort of a camouflage to all of this underbelly, but even more importantly, the stories Hollywood tells, these stories of individual triumph and characters that we love, it's almost like a joy factory that is fueled by misery. You know, yeah. you didn't say that, but that's kind of what, what it I, I got. What made you decide enough is enough. I have to write this book.
1: Well, I've always wanted to be an author, first of all. You know, I'm a big reader. I, I read so much. And I, I knew from many author friends that if you are going to write a book, you had best believe in that book because you're going to be the one out there you know, pitching it and then writing it and then selling it. You're going to be living with this project for a long time. And it will have your name on it. And like for me, again, book nerd, for it to live on in libraries and classrooms, people's homes, it better be good. I I need to be proud of it. And I, I can tell you like kind of a signal moment that I remember really distinctly. An industry friend who was established for a long time, I was just texting him this long list of like litany of like complaints about, this was two years ago, it was March of 2021. And I looked at it and then I took a straight screenshot of it because some part of my brain said, this is a book proposal. If I take out most of the swearing, not all, of <laughs> most of the swearing, that's funny. And, you know, <laughs> I think t- people, t- I mean, you can tell me if you people take books seriously in a way that the other kinds of work that I do, like I've been writing for, you know, print for magazines, for papers, for online, all, like all the things people take books seriously and they last in a different way. And I just wanted to put down on paper, something that for me may, you know, I wanted to make the industry's magical. I wanted to turn off the magical thinking filters that, you know, as I call them in the book Magical thinking, imagination, all these things are wonderful for the page, but let's be real about the actual industry itself. I think too far too often magical thinking in this particular industry seeps into what people believe about how the industry operates. If you want to believe it's not damaging, if you want to believe it's a meritocracy, like it's not a meritocracy. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff that is just really fantasy material. And again, love about fantasy over here, but like for the screen, for the page. So, and there was also this really over, I had been, I worked on a few stories that first half of 2021 and they just all felt very repetitive. I literally at one point had, I was working on a story about a new, like just, ter- you know, really horrible person in the industry And they said word for word, a situation that had gone down at that workplace that was unacceptable and damaging. And it was like word for word, what someone had told me about someone in the industry, like one of my very first kind of me too stories for four years previously. And I'm like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the worst version of groundhog day that you could ever imagine. (laughs) You know, I'm just, I don't want to go around in circles anymore I want to tell people what Orlando Jones says in my book, and I think he's right. It's as if the industry is set up for these outcomes. Mm. And, and the baseline of that, the setup is the baseline of the factory is in this world of magical dreams and aspirations and shiny glittery stages at award shows and all the rest. The baseline assumption is there are a lot of disposable people that we can use up and toss aside when we're done with them. And that's how the industry will operate on systems of various kinds of exploitation. And that's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. It's ugly, you know, exclusion, bias, exploitation and all manner of terrible things put under this umbrella called creativity. That's how we'll operate And it will make these companies lots of money, or at least that's what they think. I don't agree with that, actually. I don't think that operating this way saves money or is a good use of anyone's time or money. But the foundational part of the industry is we don't have to value people because if we use up this bunch and crunch them and toss them aside, we can get more. And that's what the whole glamour Imagery is about, right? You know, maybe a party that you go to is fun, but 365 days a year, the people working in the industry are not attending glamorous parties with champagne flowing. That's just some people never attend a party like that. It's if you're a grip, if you're a writer, if you're, you know, even a workaday actor, your existence is a lot of rejection, a lot of long hours, maybe colleagues that are difficult, if not abusive. So it's just a lot of things are much harder than this image of glamour and sophistication represent. And I really wanted to be able to say to people coming up or in it, I see, I see it. I see you. I see the situation that you're in. You're not crazy. I also see this, and this has been a thing throughout my career that I see the relief in people when they're like, okay, God, thank thank you. (laughs) Thank you for understanding or or, or letting me understand, helping me understand that. Yeah, sure. I've got to level up in my craft. and I've got to always every day work to be better, but you know, this particular situation that I'm in, it's nothing. Nine times out of 10, as I said, the obstacles, the problems, the unprofessionalism, the exploitation of various kinds it's not you this is the setup this is the whole the whole fundamental baseline of it and what I was worried about with the book which is why the positive response is very heartening to me a big thing I was worried about is I really like a lot of people in the industry there's there's executives I like very much there's writers producers creators people who work in crews, you know, all every manner, every walk of life composers, there are people I really respect. And I wondered, are they going to feel like I'm condemning all of them and being too harsh? And that's why I really tried to thread through examples of people, oftentimes who came up in environments or workplaces or absorbed attitudes in the industry that were terrible, and are doing the work now, real work, nuts and bolts work, how do you run a proper workplace? How do you operate so that you are not part of the machinery that crushes people? How do you do that? And so a big thesis of the book is anyone who says that working in a creative field Racism, sexism, homophobia, all, all, all transphobia, all manner of bias, all manner of abuse, all manner of exploitation. All of that is inevitable. Oh, it's just what are you gonna? What are you gonna do? It's not inevitable. Exploitative and biased and terrible norms are just that. They're not. No, we don't have to pay attention to them. We don't have to live by them. And the proof is in the pudding, which is people who came up in systems like the ones that Scott Rudin operated by, like the ones at the shows in which I go in depth on terrible things that happened. Proof in the pudding is that they are not operating that way. So the people that allowed those situations to fester and become terrible, that was their choice. And let's expose it as an active decision. And the active decision quite often is being made by the people making millions of dollars. It wasn't made by the PA. It wasn't made by the camera operator. You know, the people on the set of the Goldbergs, I've. it is a tight-knit crew. It was a tight-knit crew. I guess the show is over now. Couldn't say enough good things about Wendy McClendon Kobe, the star of the show. And they they certainly had a reaction when Jeff Garland stated in this Vanity Fair interview that I did with him that everyone on the crew loved him. Mm-hmm. You know, I really do think it's, most people just want to have a pretty good work day. They, they, they don't want to participate in something terrible. If they make mistakes. They are, allow themselves to be held accountable. They change. It, this stuff is not rocket science, but isn't it wild how sometimes in Hollywood you go, well, it's so difficult. Like that, that SNL sketch from years ago, unfrozen caveman lawyer. I don't understand. I'm just an unfrozen caveman. How could, like, come on. You know, a lot of people it's fall. Not, it's not that hard. They fall back on,
2: well, it's always been this way. And we just did a podcast last week on Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, mm-hmm. and I talked about how I was so moved by that theme. That guess what? Just because something has always been done a certain way doesn't mean that you can't change it. And I would suspect that a lot of young people coming up in the industry who look at like, what? I'm getting yelled at at work. That's not acceptable. <laughs> Yes, you can change that. And to your point, I won't say who, but we know of a showrunner who told us that they were a very different person at the beginning of their career than they are now because they evolved they probably buckling under the pressures you talk about in the book, which are huge but without the training, without the backup. Mm-hmm. they learn and they evolve and they change. Do, can we talk about a case study because there are so many bad actors in this in this book, but one of the things that I think brought us together through Twitter and just conversations is is the fate of the show Sleepy Hollow. those of you who don't know, sleepy hollow was an, a fantastic horror series in season one anyway on fox co-starring nicole bahari and tom Myson. is that how you pronounce his name Myson? and it was a it was a hit you know a john cho was in it 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 By the end of the season, it was like hardcore black horror with Monla Stenberg levitating and me going, oh, my God, I don't know if I can watch this, which is so difficult on television to get that feeling. I love so much as a horror fan, like, oh, no, this is horrible. I can't keep watching this, but I can't stop. And then (laughs) it all imploded.
0: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine. coming
1: January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.
2: And, you know, the worst part of it, to me, was this whisper campaign that started about Nicole Bahari, where she was basically blackballed. I had a producer say to me when I suggested Nicole as someone we approach, say, oh, but didn't she? And, and I'm like, no, she did not. But this rumor that she bit someone was, first of all, it's a ridiculous rumor, but it was it, it it was pervasive. Everybody heard it, everybody knew it. So what went wrong and what was wrong? What was your biggest takeaway with what was wrong with Sleepy Hollow? If you can narrow it down to one thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, gosh, now you've asked me the toughest question of all. Where do we begin? I mean, where do we even begin? It's some of the
2: things that stand out for me. I'll give you some, some like little points here. The, how about for me as a fan, it was watching Nicole Bahari's character, who's supposed to be a co lead, just Mm -hmm. fading into the background in her own show. And that was, that was the, I'm sure that made her very unhappy as an actress as well. and And I will say at the start, I know a lot of fans wanted a romance between her and her co-star. I, I see that all the time. That's like their biggest beef. Why didn't? And that, to me was never the point. i i I would have been more than happy to see her with just like someone she deserved to be with, some black love on TV for a change. But the only time they paired her romantically with anybody was this kind of loser white dude character who was nowhere near her level and I was like what are they doing with her
1: I will never forget being in the writers room when that topic came up and as i say in the chapter it was you know they did not end up doing this but it was proposed that that, that Nicole and this new treasure hunter character would kiss and i'm like i'm looking around I'm like that feeling we just talked about am i the crazy one here what's happening <laughs> why what is this Why would she? Why would she? It just, like, I'm like, you know, it's what one of the sources told me. You don't know what you have. You know, I mean, if I had to boil it down, it would be that. And one of the things that they had was an incredibly charismatic, skilled Black woman at the center of it. And I see this a lot. So I'm not just dinging Fox here. They want the credit for that without doing anything with it, and then actually fucking it up. Mm. They want the credit for? They want to take a victory lap, you know. I'm just going to spill some tea here. You know, the 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 the, the show, The Hundred. I talk about it a little bit later in the book. Um, that show did the you know barrier gaze trope, killed off a, a queer woman right after. That queer woman consummated her love for another woman. <laughs> Which uh, is like, oh wow. Punishment for the yeah. Let's, yeah. Just let's just take all the cliche boxes right away. And I that that showrunner, I watched him in, you know, the hotel we were doing the Television Critics Association press tour essentially take a victory lap. And I think I actually sit down, sat down with him. They took a victory lap on the press conference stage and in the press for having queer characters. And then they unleashed absolutely appropriate and deserved hell on the show and on the, you know, what it's, it's, a, it's a complicated story, but they, they messed that up. They didn't, they wanted the credit for having it, but they didn't want to do anything with it. And it's just what happens when you have that complete disjunction that Steve talked about.
0: You know, a real nasty, example of that and this is using a little bit of deduction because people don't say things directly but i was supposed to write avery brooks's autobiography oh oh my gosh And, and avery brooks huge fan you'll notice he has not worked since deep space nine for all practical purposes he got the you'll never work in this town again because he refused, he did not want them to kill him off the way they planned to. They planned to have him be sacrificial to save the station and elevate him to the stake of Godhood. And he refused to do it because he did not want to leave his, his son, they made a black father and son. And that situation blew up and he basically, as far as I can determine, you know, because like I said, it, it's indirect, destroyed his career. By saying he would not do what it was that these people wanted him to do, to create the sacrificial black man, the, you know, the, the absent black father. They did not see that. They thought they were honoring him. And mm. I, I cannot count the number of times I have heard creators, you know, I, I made a list of over 200 movies in which all the black people or all the black men died. So white people could you know could mourn and say oh God it's so terrible I loved him so much Let's you mourn. shall be avenged he shall right, be avenged right, right, you know right. and you know people will say well you should be glad I mean he he, he died to inspire them what's what's wrong with that You're so noble it, it's, it, yeah that's right it's literally it's so it's not it's not that it's oblivious it's that they don't realize that they are expressing their values that they yeah. they're telling us what how they how they value human life and what the gradient
1: is. Exactly. And one reason to put Sleepy Hollow in the book is for exactly the reasons you're talking about. By the way, this is just a little segue, but Avery Brooks also a wonderful director. Mm-hmm. So like I, I'm furious in my bones about the art that I didn't get. Right. You know, performances I didn't get from him, the directed like the directing work I didn't get from him. Nicole Bahari not working for years, Harold Perrineau. I was talking with a gentleman on Twitter the day that that lost article went out. Imagine six seasons of lost with Harold Perrineau, this incredible actor at the top of his game, filling out that character over six years. And it's the same thing. He said, why Why is this black, why are these black, black father and son? Like it's like, it was another, it was another shit show. And honestly, he took his career in his hands by bringing up his problem with the black father, not caring about his missing black son in this script in episode two. And then, you know, guess who's not in the show in season three. Right. That's just, you know, that infuriates me, but, but just to go back to sleepy that this is the problem one of the many problems in Hollywood context is everything. I mean, you're artists, you're writers, you understand that. Like, if I don't, if I don't set up the context for this character's choice, no one will buy in. The reader's just going to check out. I don't, they're not Mm going to. So you have to create a context. And the problem with Hollywood is who is supplying the context. Where is their POV?
2: Mm -hmm. Where's their
1: head coming from? What's the history that they're thinking about. And so you have a very small subset, largely, you know, heterosexual, cisgender white men who, you know, they're allowed to exist. I'm not saying, well, that's fine. They exist. But I'm saying the POV, the context suppliers was always that. And so are they going to think, and this is what I run into all the time. And sometimes you hear women parroting it. Oh, well, it was, by, by having this female character sexually assaulted, we were drawing attention to the problem of, you know, sexual assault that women face. I'm like, I've been a woman all my born days, and I'm telling you, I've encountered all sorts of problems. I didn't get the promotion. I got into a car accident. You know, someone I care about died. The, the, why is that the go-to? The context is, you as a, you know, you you from your limb, this, this cadre of people always had control of the storytelling, whether executives creators, executive producers, directors, the POV was so narrow, they had the context and the worldview that they had. And what I would like to do is put a neon signs over Hollywood, a sign that says, you're not special. Every one of those people thought they were the special gifted one that they were the only one who thought of it. Mm. I'm the only person who thought about killing a black man because then it would be a, a noble sacrifice. No, dude, you're not special. Everybody like, thinks of that. All, literally everyone has thought of that.
0: I, well, I've actually gotten to the point where Mike said, my assumption is <laughs> that images like that, that I see so often actually are expressing an unconscious preference. Uh-oh. They're yeah. actually talking about, in their fantasies, these other people don't exist. They don't exist that, that you know, if, if if it's cisgender white males, then they are the center of the universe. And the same thing would be true of any group that got into that position. I'm not exactly. saying that they're worse than anybody. It's just that that's what power does in a, both a positive and a negative sense, which is why I think that the only solution is diversity behind the camera. Absolutely. That, that, that that's that's the answer. Don't educate people, no, just don't get people me. in there.
1: And real power. Thank you. Yeah, real power. What here's the thing. What a lot of places do, what look at our diverse cast. Okay, Lucasfilm, where are the black people making your shows? Like the story art the story architect, because different studios now say head writer or creator or showrunner or whatever you want to call it. Let's just say, okay, in Star Wars, TV or film, how many black people directed the story? How many black people wrote the story or created the story? Right. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that the actors are getting the gigs. Don't get me wrong. Yes. Give them gigs all day long. But the real power, as you know, is the power positions of, in a film, the top producer or the studio executive overseeing the film, the director of the film, in TV, the creator, the executives overseeing the film. Unless those people have a different context and point of view and a different take then we're gonna keep getting the same thing over and over again, and this is again. I'll, I'll go back to just queer women being killed off, as a, as, a, as a really smart writer once explained it to me. You know, it's like it's like they have a, they have a, a box of like Lego figurines. Everyone in the story is a little splinter for the creator of the show, the showrunner, whoever you want to call it, or the film. Um, this is all their little pieces of their psyche that they're moving around the game board. Right. But here's a character who, if it presents as a woman or non-binary or femme, she's an avatar that would never sleep with a, a male character, a heterosexual male character. So on some level, as you say, Steve, on some level, that character is uninteresting to him. It just like, what, what would I need a queer woman for? Right. But what is right. that? What is the purpose of they're, that?
0: They're disposable.
1: They're disposable.
0: So and in you... a horrible sense, I believe that you can look at mortality statistics in society itself with some of these different groups and you will see that the apportionment of resources or police violence or other things actually mirrors that. that you're looking at what Pain people killers. want and they will actually try to create a world that matches their fantasies. And that's where it becomes horrifically dangerous. And even yeah. legal,
1: yes. To me, this is life and death. To yes, me, yes.
0: Death. You know, non-binary people. Everything that went people. down in
1: Ferguson, I will never forget. Darren Brown, that police officer. He, you know, the black man as animalistic.
0: Yes, and... yes. This kneel on his neck. You know,
2: in, in, I'm in, scared. You no, know, that yeah, he shot. He, him to he, death over there. Shot yeah,
1: Mike Brown. Dead dead
2: dead dead. Dead. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so the thing, you know, just to bring it back to Nicole Bihari. I sat in the room. I sat in that room, which is like every other room, just about that I had ever been aware of up to that point, certainly. A bunch of white men talking, a bunch of middle-aged white men talking. There's a black woman in the room, she barely makes a sound. I understand from her position, she has no power. Most oh, yeah. people in a Hollywood production have no power. And that often includes the actors. Because we all know, and I've talked about my book, there's a million examples we could talk about going back 100 years. The actor gets fired for piping up and speaking up Avery Brooks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, these people are gambling with their careers, most actors, most of the time, for speaking up about anything. Yeah. If you are a Black person, Latina person, if you are not from the dominant group, man, the dangers you're tripling doubling tripling quadrupling the danger i remember
0: one thing that I, I watched happen It was criminal minds which we loved watching shamar moore who was the most gorgeous man on television literally every other member of the cast had a love interest in the first season he did not get one until season 10. he yeah. was a he was a sexual fantasy for garcia for their hacker character who also had other relationships and i'm my sense is that he complained about it, complained about it, complained about it, and then basically threatened to leave. And then he left and he got another show. In the last the last couple of episodes, he was ever, and they finally gave him a love interest. They finally gave him a little home life. And Blair yeah. Underwood, other people told us the right. same thing. These, it, Unless there's somebody in the room who has an instinctive connection to your humanity, they will not even understand the way they will, they'll keep all the toys for their children. You know, it's, it's just what people do. And I think that to the degree that we can remove the morality from it and look at it as a quality of human nature that has to be compensated for, it's easier to get people to look at it without feeling guilty and shutting down and, and going into denial.
1: Absolutely. And I think that a lot of this, again, it's POV. You know, I have the point of view of having grown up a white woman on the south side of Chicago. So, you know what? I had to outgrow. Like, I have a lot of time for people willing to open themselves up to different point of view. But what t- Hollywood typically does is, oh, okay, well, we'll just get a better group of white men to run it. Like, <laughs> a different group of white men.
0: <laughs> We have the very best white men. Um, <laughs> the very best.
1: That's not what I was saying exactly, but you know, cause I've been doing this work on inclusion, diversity and all the rest. I've been doing hardcore reporting on that for 20 years, more than 20 years. And so I know every stat and I can quote them back to every executive, all the live long day. I do think the numbers help. And so the problem is though still, you know, the Asian characters still too often are the tech support. How many, how many times have you seen the Asian character that doesn't speak and is just mysterious? Mm -hmm. Um, You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, come on, not only does the person have to have that lived experience that they connect with, as you say, Steve, absolutely correct. They have to have somebody who has their back. They have to have, they can't be, you know, alone and really in danger for speaking up. Exactly. They or the people that have their backs, ideally multiple people have to have real power, have to have juice. So that if and when they do speak up and say, you know, I have an issue with this aspect of the script, or I, I wouldn't do that. Let's not make both of these black men in this script evil, you know. Or mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like this ties into a stereotype. We are five, you know. The the creator of Dickinson, Elena Smith, she's so great because I am stealing this from her directly from some stuff that she said at the ATX TV festival. She said, "We're five minutes into these people thinking differently." We're five minutes into a different industry. You know, yes, Me Too and all that was three years, ago, five, six years ago. I don't know what time is anymore, clearly. <laughs> but you know, oh well, we've had a big racial reckoning. Oh, did your studio really put a black box on Instagram? How great! Well, <laughs> oh, it's all fixed now. Wow. Yay! What does the executive suite look like? Yeah. Who has the green light power?
0: Because if you don't have if you don't have diversity there their assumption that whether they'll say it or not is we can't find enough good people to be diverse so they what they're mean. saying underneath it all underneath the political politeness is we don't really think they're equal but we have to pretend that we do or get into trouble
1: we so, have to do the cosmetic thing
0: yeah we have yeah. to do the cosmetic thing because if you really believed in equality you would also ask the question what are the forces that keep there from being equality in the executive suite
1: right so my husband his mother was born in china born you know emigrated to malaysia married dave's father who's a white englishman who went out to malaysia to work and so my husband all his life has been back and forth to malaysia london so we went and saw crazy rich asian and this this is illustrating what we're talking about here we went to see crazy rich asians and we both had a great time it's a funny Rom-com. Wonderful. Yeah. Fantastic. It's, the,
0: it's yeah. one of, it was the only, it's the only movie in which an Asian man has sex that has ever earned over $100 million domestic.
1: Thank it's you. The 80 and 80. the desexualization of Asian men, it's like, what? I know. It's horrible. Please. Like, it's so annoying horrible. to me, personally. I go Anna on. and the King, not even a kiss. What? Not, it's they're, they're just the tech support or the silent ninja. I'm so tired. of yeah. it. It's so annoying. But Unix. So exactly. So, and this is all again reflecting this is the secret fantasy. Like the white man is the one who saves everyone, and everyone else just sure. doesn't, you know, do stuff. And Biggest,
0: strongest, strongest, toughest, smartest, sexiest.
1: But we both, when it came out of that movie, like just the littlest details were right. The littlest details of the food. And you know what I mean? Like we both were like, this is so granularly as, you know, as the white daughter-in-law coming in, I made every mistake, you know, because I was, there was that element of, um, you know, Constance Wu's character was the American, you know, and like she doesn't understand the culture and she's making every mistake. And I was like, oh yeah, I've been there sister. I get it. (laughs) But it was so good. And, you know, Adele Lim just wrote the shit out of that. Like she had a co-writer, I think Peter something, Peter Chirilli, something like that so you know what the thing is this is what what, the point i ultimately wanted to make was okay they brought her in i do i could be wrong about this but i think that there was sort of agitation from the cast of like can we can we just not have a white man (laughs) like right and nothing against that dude as we're saying but like what's the pov here the director obviously you know was an asian man so like but they want they wanted really to feel supported and, like, they wanted their culture to be represented accurately. And I definitely, we mm-hmm. both felt that. And, you know, it's, it's more important to me that those communities felt that way. And then the point I'm trying to drive at is there's going to be a sequel. And Adele Lim walks away, understandably, because they offer her chump change. Oh. Can you and that's what I'm talking about with this whole like well now we fix race too, so it's fine. We're all good here. Good. Okay, no. No, we're not fine because you are still devaluing financially and you know the contributions of people who are making your entertainment better. I don't understand that, but this is just so constant. I could have done a chapter on that, but you know, for me the sequel. It, it, it's yes. hollow. This the sequel. I don't know if that sequel ever is going to happen. Maybe I don't know, but like that's just the studio. How, how cloistered are you that you don't see that disaster for what it is? Pay the woman what she's worth. Come uh, oh, on, you're getting my this blood is, boiling. This, 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 this is what happened. If like if you know if we if we go back to Sleepy Hollow, which is kind of where I was leading, it's like, what POV do you value? Who were the there i believe at the time that sleepy Hollow was on i do believe that there was one black executive there but overwhelmingly what is the common denominator at the studio at the network at in the writing room and there were writers of color throughout i believe all four seasons so i'm not saying there weren't but sometimes but often i think it's only one or maybe two right like if that not a coalition at all not at all and not at all and they're often as you know the people in power play a game of divide and conquer so that yeah. people do not, you know, find community or, you know, have each other's backs. So, really, I'm just going to say like, I didn't use the word massage noir in that chapter because I thought, and you can tell me if you thought I make the wrong decision, because I thought maybe that would be like more of an academic word that people might not understand. I want this book to be very accessible to everyone, but this is a textbook example of massage noir. Do I think? That the white folks at the studio and the network and this and that oversaw most important elements of the show and most of the EPs and both of the show, all I I believe, the season one, Clifton Campbell, Mark Goffman, I don't believe they woke up in the morning like I want to ensure that a talented, charismatic, on the rise black actress will want to leave the show that she's the star of. Well, clearly that was not (laughs) But the the conditions. The conditions were set by. They didn't care about her interior life, her emotional life. They didn't care about her as a person with aspiration or flaws or whatever. And part of what makes me nuts in all this is we all know how long Supernatural ran. Like what, two hundred thousand episodes? Like some insane amount of time. I remember when I was got that as a pilot. You know, it's like okay, two dudes like we're driving around ghosts, whatever. I still think to this day give that property to creators who would understand the value of it and a huge amount of the value of it was depicting the nuanced at first anyway, and interesting characters and relationships from all walks of life. You know, Clancy Brown loved his character, like, but a big part of what made the show work and what got it, I noticed was social media. So it's part of that disconnect that Steve was talking about, you know, the disconnect between the creative and the artist Mm -hmm. here's social media. And again, they want the credit for having made this show into a word of mouth hit or social media hit. I will never forgive. I will never forgive. I am working on it. I'm trying, I meditate, but I cannot believe I will ever forgive how the fans of sleepy hollow were done dirty.
2: Yeah, and, and to hear the hurt feelings and complete misunderstanding about why the feelings were hurt, like it, that they, we're upset as if it's an attack. Our being upset is an attack on you. No, our being upset is because we're seeing an attack on our show and this co-lead of our show. And you had created probably one of the best horror seasons I've ever seen on television. And it was as if someone said, well, we can't have that. <laughs> And it all went away. So anyway.
0: There's also that sense that what Nicole Beharie was on that show was virtually unique to television.
1: Yeah, it's never that, been before.
0: There have been countless white and especially white male, you know, in those positions. Yes. So the, the, the proportional insult was far greater.
1: Absolutely. And that's if you're not I'm
0: representative, right. this is unique.
1: Because the context is, the context is for that. Get Christy Love ran for one season in Mm. 1974. I I wove in some comments from Diane Carroll. The first broadcast show starring a black woman that was not based on racist stereotypical shows like Amos and Andy. There was Julia. Julia. Yes, I remember that. He was hospitalized due to stress. Nicole Bahari was at the ER. Enduring and ended up enduring medical problems that had years of consequences for her. Because it's just like that. This keeps happening. Why does this keep happening, America? This is we have to talk about the fact that you know one of Hollywood's first big hits was Birth of a Nation. Mm. The Hayes Code codified racist exclusion you know the, well, the, the I mean and of, we're still gone, moving gone away with from the that.
0: wind in adjusted dollars gone with the wind is the most popular movie that probably will ever be made right. and we could not it it's image of slavery and what that meant in america was the dominant image system for slavery in terms of cinematic images i could make a case that there had not there was not a Major theatrical film dealing with slavery, theatrical film, until Django Unchained from the position of the slave, not right. from white people in you know, doing the, the countless movies about the Civil War. But it took a madman like Quentin Tarantino. And I remember Reggie Hudlin said that in Tarantino, he, he said there were four directors in the world who could have made that movie and three of them wouldn't do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's, again, what we're talking about. This is, what I, this is what I truly believe about the, the images that we see on screen. I don't care what the creator said. I don't care what the studio notes say. I don't care what the studio president say. The person we're taught to care about is the point of view that we're inside. When we were watching Breaking Bad, the person we cared about was Walter White because the camera told us to care about him. The camera was on him the most. And when you have teams of people that it's this is not their experience, they don't really care, you know, this is what happens over and over again. And what Hollywood really doesn't want to do is the same thing America really doesn't want to do, which is have people who aren't white dudes in power. You know, Barack Obama was the president for eight years, and we are still paying for that. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. legit lost their minds, lost their sense of.
0: Yes, we probably got Trump because of Obama.
1: Exactly. And I didn't, I'm a dummy. I wasn't prepared for that level of backlash. You know, I knew that there was vitriol I knew, but I think, you know, fear.
0: there was fear is what there is.
1: It's, it's fear that. What if these people who are not me have meaningful power? Right. And Hollywood still hasn't done that. P.S. There are some executives in key positions, you know, people of color, queer people, but the vast majority of people who own, run, and make the decisions are from the same class as they were 10 years ago. You, you as were were 100 years ago. I don't know to
0: pay in mind that might be frightening. I think Hollywood is better than most of America about this stuff. I think they're actually a little yeah. better. Not a lot better, but they're a little better. They're a little, well, they're a little ahead it is, of
1: it. The challenge I would make to, Steve, is this. Yeah. They're better at admitting it. I don't think they're any better at doing anything about it, doing anything significant and meaningful over time.
0: I don't know. I, I take a look at different industries, you know. I look, take a look at the political arena, take a look at all of that, and it seems to me that they they give a good lip service to it, but I think that there is, you know, they they follow, you know, that the, the, they're not the dog that wags the tail. You know they they follow things. They don't have a lot of courage, but I think that they act that the average the average white person in Hollywood at their level of income knows more black people than the average white person at that level of income in other industries and in other parts of the country.
1: That's true, and what you've just said that's the that's so yeah. it's
0: it's frightening. It's frightening because it's still so bad. It's still so
1: bad. <laughs> Here's, 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 here's the weapon, if you will, that, you know, like, I don't know, maybe I'm like the, the headless horseman swinging my axe, which, you know, some days I absolutely want to do that. <laughs> um, this, this, the, the, the piece of leverage that people have is that they make all these statements we value inclusion. We value, we, we respect our workforces. We respect, we want respectful and professional workplaces and we value inclusion. Okay. Prove it. Right. Here's your stats. Mm. Oh, they're bad. What are you going to do about it? And the thing is I beat that drum so many times. I will beat it again.
2: Bless you. I remember in journalism, I, w- I was
1: there long enough,
2: 10 years at my former newspaper, the Miami Herald that I was on, various incarnations of the diversity committee. And by the third time around, you're like, oh boy, here we go again. Well, let me ask you something. We could have had you for a double episode, Mo, because this has been amazing. But I want to get to the self-care piece, because as far back as when the first Vanity Fair excerpt came out, and everyone was reading it about Lost, because that was a very popular series. Like, my whole social media was burning up. When I realized that someone I knew was quoted in your book, I sent her an email immediately And just said, thank you so much for speaking up. You're doing the Lord's work. Because as a former journalist who was terrified of ever printing anything that was maybe inaccurate or just people being mad at me, you know, that's why I went to features. I was never an investigative expose style reporter. I cannot imagine what it feels like to have a book like this out in an industry where everybody knows you, where in some cases you're writing about people you know and like in a confrontational way. How are you centering yourself and keeping the panic attacks at bay <laughs> <laughs> since the book oh. has come
1: out and while you were working on it?
2: You said you've been threatened.
1: Yeah, legal threats, many legal threats.
0: Oh, I'm sure. So, so that- what do you do to take care of yourself? How do you center yourself and find joy in life?
1: This, the, I'm so glad you asked that because that's a work in progress. And I think that it's very easy to get on a treadmill of outside accomplishment or you know accomplishment in the world. So I it's it's a work in progress. Sometimes the 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 desire to help people that comes I know from a good place in me leads me down a path that can be absolutely terrifying for me. Because what you what I do, what I've often done is you know, it's a result of their actions and a result of the bravery of the sources willing to put those actions into the world. But sometimes people lose their jobs as a result of investigative reporters like myself. Mm -hmm. And then what you've got is a person who's got nothing but money, time and vengeance on their mind. It is scary. I, I mean, part of it is, I have to acknowledge that. And that's actually been a, a smart thing. You know, I found a new therapist who said, who reframed my entire existence for me, my work existence for me by saying, cause she works with a lot of first responders, firefighters and cops. And she says, Mo, you do understand that you're a trauma worker. Right. And I'm like, say what now? Mm. And that really switched a light on over my head because so much of what I do and we were chatting earlier and what I, you know, I did, I, I really did not give myself enough time. So I would say that, you know, the piece of advice I would offer to people if they are engaged in, like, maybe you're writing a book about something difficult, or maybe you're doing a story in which difficult things perhaps happen for characters. If you're a thinking, feeling, emoting person, which we all are, if you're a creative, you're you're emoting. You have to give yourself the amount of space that you need. Maybe you can only write half of a page of that scene that day. Mm -hmm. you got to give yourself, you got to reframe it as, I'm so glad I got that half scene done or half page or two pages done. Different types of writing, I love to hear about Steve's method. Different types of writing take, take different things out of you or put different things in you. And that's been a really, really tough process for me the big mistake I made was thinking I could do interviews with people on incredibly tough topics, sometimes that went to very dark places, and thinking, well, I'll just get up tomorrow and I'll write, you know, 4,000 words. I <laughs> right, yeah. No. I can't. I couldn't You're human. do it. You're, I'm human. And so yes. I, I think that that was a miscalculation on my part. I have this tendency to want to be thorough, which that actually helps protect you from the legality and the legal threats and the the angry, you know, lawyers coming at you with pitchforks. But so I want to be thorough. I want to understand for myself, even, you know, the, a lot of the sleepy hollow chapter came from I don't understand this. And I kept asking to not read that. Why? And she was like, No, people, you know, they are they work against their interests. And you, you, you were such a key source in that whole throughout the book but in that part specifically so I think you also have to figure out and give yourself the space for when you reach your limit on something and it's not that I won't do this kind of work in the future but one big thing that I just was speaking to a reporter who's kind of earlier in her career stage than myself today and one thing I said was and I I would love to get your input on this. The system is the system. And it's it's whether it's by design or by default or by accident, it's designed to crush you. Hmm. So the system is the system is the system and it's going to roll on crushing things. You have to decide when to take a step back from it because you, you can't, if you, if you set yourself the task of saving the entire world and fixing the whole industry, can't do it. You can't do it. And no, so no, absolutely true. No,
2: I uh, I agree.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I was kind of, we, we always do move towards a, well, frankly, a commercial at this point, <laughs> you know, we, there are products that we sell that have to do with artists taking care of themselves and living high energy, creative lifestyles, trying to figure out from what it is that you're saying there is back and forth You initially. We talk about LifeWritingPremium.com or, FireDanceTaiChi.com, dot com, and I think that, that because they're, you're talking about actors, you're talking about executives, you're talking about reporters, people trying to bring truth into the world and birth this new world that we all want, and the stress they're taking. I guess you know the the, the fire dance tai chi thing. My, you know, the, the question is, who are you? Who who is who is the one that is doing the work? You have to take care of yourself first. You have to set yourself up every day so that your emotions, your actions, and your physical energy are all moving in the same direction. And you also have to be willing to protect yourself. Yes. You have to be willing to protect yourself and protect that little creative child inside you that is the one that has the creative energy. So I think that that in, in respect to what it is that you're saying, that, you know, everything that we're doing is, is holistic, but the, the, the pro, the fire dance Tai Chi program, which uses movement and affirmation and visualization every morning to create a ritual. But, but in mentioning that, allow me to offer to you one of the most primary exercises that we do in there. And it's, it's called the five minute miracle. And you, you, you can, eliminate the danger of stress from your life if you'll just do this one thing and it's just this go to go to youtube and look up diaphragmatic breathing mm-hmm. deep slow belly breathing you know yoga and tai chi and qigong and opera singing all use deep okay and then all you do is you set the timer on your your cell phone at the top of every hour during the day do 60 seconds of deep slow diaphragmatic breathing do that a minimum of five times a day, and you will absolutely transform your body's relationship with stress so that you can perform at a high level without it damaging you. This is serious stuff. This yes. is I'm not kidding. It works like magic. It's not theoretical. Actually, actually do this if because you're under a lot of stress right now and you are a true ally. You are really uh, working to make me so so I care. We care about you a, a lot.
1: Well, thank <laughs> you. Well, first of all, I want to say this is why I do it. This is why I do it because of the connections that I form with people, the bonds that I form with people. That is the flip side of the people the, the people who are pretty nasty or mean or vindictive coming after me. I have connected with people in a, in ways I never thought possible. And every time I thought I was risking my career, what I actually did was open the door to a new alliance and new friendships and new creative opportunities. And I want to build on what you just said about physical I think that's so key and for your listeners I want to really briefly say two things that have helped me a lot. Please I'm a, twi- I'm a 20-year meditator.
2: Mm.
1: What, what tradition? The I guess you know Hama Chodron. I don't know if you know her work, but not Zen, more of a Theravada Buddhist tradition. Okay. My, okay. my my in the tradition I learned and this is what I want to say to you. Every time I tell people, even on Twitter or wherever, right, that I'm a meditator, I could never empty my mind of thoughts. That's not what meditation is. You gently let the let, let thoughts happen, but as as it, you sometimes I even visualize it. You let it like a, a little balloon float away. Yes. Go and in the tradition I was taught, focus on the out breath, focus on the in breath, out breath, and then as the thoughts Beautiful. come, okay, yep, I see you. Beautiful. Off you go. Yes. Stinking. Yes. Yes. And so the breathing, the meditation, Steve, I got to tell you, I feel like, and if this is a true thing, I've read the literature on it, you can actually change how your brain works, as you said. Oh, with absolutely. It's unbelievably helpful. And for me, you know, especially if people have trauma in their background, disassociation is a, is a, is a very common coping skill. Yes. So I meditate. I I allow myself to feel what I'm feeling. I welcome the feelings. I w- I really appreciate Pema Chödrön's books and other books like Tara Brock, people like that. They invite you and sometimes with a therapist I do a visualization thing. Bring those feelings in. I resisted them and that's really for me what has led to mental health challenges is when you push them away. Bring them in, have the conversation. But something I learned about just last year is and you can look it up online anywhere, distress tolerance. When you're physically or mentally distressed to the point where logical thought is very difficult, we—I mean, I—I I, I find myself in that place sometimes. Where just the panic, the anxiety, like the intellect, the up here, that's not driving. It's just the instinctual fear response, the panic right. response. And what find the physical things that help you feel like you're in your body. Yes. That can be for me, it's petting my cats. Sometimes I'm like, cat, get over here. You got a job to do. (laughs) So for me, for everybody, it's going to be different. What physical things can help you feel like you are present and not dissociating? And the breathing can help when you're in a panicked state. For some people, you can find even like, you know, sort of like things to play with with your hands, textural things. What's a texture you love? If you look up Distress Tolerance, you'll find all sorts of lists. And I have found a few that have worked for me in moments of really, honestly, like, psychological crisis. Not, you know, I need to go to a hospital thing, but, like, I'm really struggling to just get through each moment. Mm -hmm. And I have had those moments with this book because I'm not a psychopath or a sociopath or someone who enjoys inflicting abuse. Even the people I talk about, even the tough conversations I have. I don't like hurting people. I don't like it. It's Mm-mm. tough, and then I worry about the response. But distress tolerance, finding things that physically worked for me was huge. And I find, I and I would love to get your take on this. I I love. I'm going to look up everything that you're telling me about and do. Yeah, it. it's
0: at uh, FireDanceTaiChi.com.
1: Physical like, activity for me, it's gardening. Wonderful. I love, I love having. I love having a physical activity where I'm really into it. I actually feel artistically inspired. Like I'm going to put this here and that's going to grow into that. It's going to be so cool. Like I feel I, we work with words so much to me, it helps to have a form of expression that does not have to do with language centers.
0: Yes. There are people who are so narrow and brittle that they believe that unless it can be expressed in words, there is no thought there is no experience of life that is simply their limitation it's a limitation um, you know they, they, what you talked about there are other things that you look at the gap between words you observe the thoughts as if they were logs floating behind a river you you know you are not your thoughts and feelings but you are the ex- the space in which your thoughts and, and, and feelings exist which then leads you to the question that who is the observer
2: and also in t- in terms of mindfulness, which is also something I'm learning to do better in my meditation. I'm not as good as Steve. He's a, he's the champ with meditation. But speaking of Breaking Bad, if you remember every time someone was about to die, they're in the desert and they're focusing on just something beautiful, like a, f- a flower growing in it, like a single flower growing in the sand. And And I think about that a lot in terms of how to focus, even in a moment of mortality, on the positive and on beauty and on something that can bring comfort yes. and gardening is very much that for sure. It's true. I
1: I actually, I'm going to get really woo-woo for you now. You're, Please. You're, I've, I've literally told no one this, but like my husband and a couple of close friends, I wonder if, I don't know if reincarnation is real. I don't know. I guess I'll find out sometime. Um, but I actually wonder if there's some part of me that has like, you know, was, was an animal or was a bird at some point, because I actually find Looking at flowers and looking at colors, I find that to be a language. Mm. I, I would say trust, trust lovely. You.
0: We don't know what is ultimately. We have ideas about it, but if there's an idea that gives you joy, I mean, I go with what the Dalai Lama said that the the meaning of life is to be joyful and of service, and if you can find joy in your life by seeing yourself as a bird or a flower or a kinship with the sun, what difference does it make if it makes you kind?
1: exactly loving
0: and healthier exactly
1: and i think that's why i actually made the analogy in my book hey let's do the version of hollywood that's not a cult that gets Mm. people out of their bodies that makes people mistrust their emotion and their sensations and their thoughts you know we don't have to work people 17 18 hours a day i mean when i when i talk to people And, you know, oh, so-and-so was difficult on set. You have no idea how difficult I would be if you were working me 16 hours a day and it was 100 degree temperatures and I had a heavy costume on. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I just saw Juliette Lewis last night on a series we were watching and I I couldn't help thinking what you wrote in the book that she had walking pneumonia when she was shooting natural Killers*. I'm like, oh, my God, poor baby.
1: And we can, we we you know, I know the picket lines are tough. I know times are tough, but, you know... That's the thing that does bring joy to me. I saw words from my book on somebody's Pickett Stein, A guy who worked, writes for Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. I'm yes. like, what is happening? What? So, like, I gotta tell you. Know, I don't know if we're wrapping up, but like, to yeah. leave, to give your listeners a happy note, Steve and Tananaev, I don't even. I can't even tell you how much joy I've experienced in the last two weeks. Oh, good. I was afraid of so many, like, I was like, okay, I have trepidation about this, get out there, shovel a lot of gravel, plant some plants, move a bush over here, you know, I was like working it out however I could. But the response has been tremendous. And what's heartening to me is that I do think there's an understanding on the part of the public of why people are striking, why they're speaking out in the book, because I do think the parallel between the strike the pair in in the kind of reporting that myself and other reporters do is the group came together and there are differences among the people in that group. They don't all agree on necessarily every single bit of this and that, but they found common cause. And, you know, people are out there on those picket lines singing, dancing. I know they're having worries about their bills. I don't mean to diminish that, but like, I think that's, you know, Here's here's a new formulation for you as well. It's hard for good people to wrap their head around how bad bad people can be. A lot of stuff I've learned in my career, I simply couldn't have imagined it. It just it wouldn't. I, I had no frame of reference for why that. Why would someone do that? I don't understand. Why Why in success would you become cruel? Mm. In success, I would on vacation. I don't know. Like what it just doesn't it doesn't track for a good person. So a lot of good people in the industry and there are many of them simply cannot comprehend why people would do things the kind of things that many reporters have exposed. But the flip of that is look at how many people are out there walking around these studio lots every day for a purpose that is larger than themselves. Exactly. They
2: don't know especially newcomers to the WGA, they don't know that they'll even be able to retain their membership after this strike is over. You might not be able to get another job for three or five years or ever in some cases. So, yeah. You
1: know, I'm not going to demonize everyone running these studios. Although I personally would also like to have a $500 million yacht, Jeff Bezos. Where's mine? Could you deliver it to my door? Two day shipping. I like, I think they, kind of can't understand, because if you're focused on your own success and your own ambition and your own financial gain, and you're willing to do anything for it, you can't understand maybe when people are coming together in common cause to make the world better. But that's what's being modeled right now, I think, in many arenas of the industry. And if people are not going to follow that program, I'm here to fuck them up. You sure are.
2: And what a great way to end the podcast. This has been just such an amazing conversation. I could talk to you for three hours, but Maureen Ryan.
1: is was there if you ever want me back.
2: Also known, hey, we'll take you up on that. Also known as Mo Ryan, who wrote Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and I Call for Change in Hollywood. Buy it, buy it, buy it. Read it, read it, read it and learn from it. There are solutions as well as problems, which is one of the things I love about this book. Thank you so much for bringing this light shining this light into the industry that we all love so much. And thank you for being on the podcast. Everyone go out and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story.
0: A hero in the adventure of your lifetime.
2: Bye t- bye-bye bye everybody. Thank you. Woo!
0: You've been listening to the life writing podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to LifeWritingPremium.com and get ready to
1: write for your life.